0: Heavenly Father, we've gathered here this morning to worship You by Your grace in spirit and in truth, and we want to be faithful worshipers this hour. I praise You for this passage from the book of Revelation, and I ask, Lord, that You would take this symbolic apocalyptic language and help us to understand it clearly. We want to be people who not only understand Your Word, but live in accordance with it. So I ask, Father, that as we examine who or what we worship this morning, that we would rightly conclude it is You with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And if not, Father, then I pray this would be a day of salvation, that through repentance and faith we would come to know You as the one true living God. Father, we live in a time when there are many false teachers, false prophets, and false priests of many religions, those who spew out lies and captivate the masses, those who call the unsaved to worship the first beast. Give us hearts of compassion, Father, as we contemplate those who are ensnared by these lies, those who are enslaved to sin, and make us a church that freely and boldly testifies to the hope that we have in Christ. I ask this morning, Father, that you would both encourage us with this great vision that John has of the 144,000 on Mount Zion, and that you would rightly warn us, Father, that we would not take for granted um, the times in which we live, but we would see clearly, Lord, the darkness that prevails, that we might guard our hearts and minds and our brothers and sisters as well. I ask, Lord, that you would be honored during this time and that your spirit would move amongst us mightily and that he would do what only he can do, and that is transform us into the image of your son. Do that, Father, for our well-being, for the well-being of this community in which you have placed us, but above all else, I pray you would do it for your glory. You are worthy of it. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. I'm very thankful you're here. Um, If you're not open to Revelation chapter 13, please do so. We have um, some verses that you have probably heard multiple times, even if you've never studied the book of Revelation. And uh, hopefully you'll get some answers as to what some of those um, terms mean, those symbols mean. Uh, Hopefully, by God's grace, there'll be clarity at the end of this um, again, we're, we, we want to understand what Revelation has to say. We believe it's God's Word. We believe it was given to the church. And so um, we will pray that the Spirit will do that for us. Um, Tim Keller, who's a pretty well-known uh, pastor and author, he once said this. He said, you don't get to decide to worship. He said, everyone worships something. The only choice you get is what you worship. In other words, everybody worships. Saved and unsaved. Everybody at this moment is worshiping someone or something in bed, in church, or somewhere else. We worship what we value most. We do so by giving that object of our worship, our affections, our thoughts, our time, our energies, our money, indeed our lives. What we worship, we give our lives to. It may be work or school. It may be money or or fame, it may be sex or entertainment, it may be religion, or it may be God, but we all worship someone or something, and that worship is evidenced in our lives. We can see it, and we can observe that. We can see it in how we live, who we listen to, how we go through our days, where you've placed all your hopes and dreams will determine and tell who or what you worship. And even though we don't get to decide whether or not we worship, everybody worships and worships, worship matters both in time and for eternity. And from our passage today, what I hope, us to, I hope for us to see is that anyone who is not worshiping the one true living God is worshiping a false god or a false idol. And in that worship, they are enslaved now. They experience slavery on this side of eternity, and one day... They will experience eternal suffering because of their worship of that idol. But the passage also shows us that if we worship the Creator, the one who made you and the one who is worthy of all glory and honor and praise, if you worship God through Jesus Christ, then not only do you have freedom in this life, but your eternal state, as we see at the beginning of chapter 14, is one of true, everlasting joy, real joy. Not the kind that we experience that is fleeting, but joy that is based upon the person of God. And so this morning, what I'd like us to do is get a clear picture of these two worshipers. And there are only two. You either worship God or you worship an idol. In Revelation 13, we find ourselves between the seven trumpets and the seven bowls we haven't made it that last cycle, which will once again recapitulate the ending of God's story. And during this period from Revelation 12, 13, and 14, God has God given John multiple visions, and each vision gives us uh, some revelation we wouldn't have otherwise. Kirk and I were talking this past week that had we, if we didn't have revelation, there's so many pieces of of this end of the story, of God's redemptive story, and so many things about life we would not understand. We'd have to guess on, and we might guess right or we might guess wrong, but thankfully the book of Revelation gives us several of these. We've had a a chance over the past several weeks to look at them. Um, This morning we get more details on the false worship of beast number one, and today we're introduced to beast number two. Um, but it, we, we're not gonna end there because we're gonna, I wanna touch on chapter 14 and that is the great vision that John has of the 144,000 on Mount Zion with God the Father and with the Lamb singing. And so we will we'll end our time together with that and hopefully cause you to rejoice deeply in your Savior. Um, this passage should do two things for us. It should warn us. It should warn us that that second beast is deceptive and we want to guard our hearts and our minds, and hopefully guard one another. And the second thing, it should encourage us deeply. It should encourage us with that hope that we have of that day when we get to be on Mount Zion with God and the Lamb. So only two points today from the passage. Number one, worshipers of the beast, and number two, worshipers of the Lamb. And I I really want you to examine your hearts this morning and ask yourself, which one am I? It doesn't matter if if you've been in church your whole life, and you've been baptized, and you're part of a, a healthy church, Ask this question. Is your life, does your life reflect worship of Jesus Christ, the Lamb? Or does it reflect the worship of the beast? The theme of the sermon is simple. It's like The question is this, what cap, or the statement, what captivates your heart determines your worship. What has your heart determines who or what you worship. So point number one, worshipers of the beast. Look at verse 11. Verse 11, then I, I saw John is speaking And he gets another vision. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. So remember, we're in apocalyptic genre, so the language is symbolic, primarily symbolic. The first beast we saw last week, the first beast came out of the sea, and we saw that that first beast symbolized evil governments, governments enslaved by Satan and used by the evil one to both enslave mankind and persecute the church. And this week, John gets another vision and we see here a second beast and this beast comes out of the earth and he's identified elsewhere in the book of Revelation as the false prophet. We get that name in chapter 16, 19, and in 20. And this second beast parodies Jesus and you probably got that. He he appears as a lamb with two horns. So in appearance, this second beast looks like, is acting like the lamb of God. It's a parody of Jesus Christ. But when the second beast opens his mouth, he does not sound like Christ, and he did not speak like Christ. He has words of Satan, and his words are against God, against God's Word, and against God's people, the church. The second beast, very simply for you, so that we can remember this, the first beast represented evil governments that were influenced by Satan. The second beast represents false religion, or false prophets and false priests of false Religion, And in John's day, that was very much the imperial priesthood, those who practiced and, and taught in the imperial cult. In fact, we know Emperor Domitian used the imperial priesthood to promulgate and enforce false worship of himself. And he did that by, by enslaving the people and persecuting the church. So the second beast represents all government-sanctioned false prophets and false religions that Satan has used in governments for centuries, not just during the time of John. And he's used these false prophets and these false priests and these false religions to enslave the masses, which we see today. And I'll give you some examples of that in a bit. And certainly to to persecute the church. Now, this should not surprise us. It didn't surprise the disciples. Jesus made this prophecy all the way back in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus said, beware of who? Of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. But inwardly are what? They are ravenous wolves. So together, the dragon who we know is Satan, the first beast, which we know represents these evil totalitarianistic governments, and now the second beast, which represents the false priests and the false prophets of these false religions, they make up what many commentators call the unholy trinity, now, we believe in the Trinity, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what we have here is this parody of the Trinity in the book of Revelation. Not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but Satan, Beast 1 and Beast 2. And it is a most vile representation of the Godhead. And together, the dragon, Satan, the first and second beast, they offer false hope and false salvation to mankind. And in so doing, they lead the multitudes astray and this is what they want to do the question is how exactly does this unholy trinity this false trinity how do they accomplish their work how do they captivate the masses and bring them into the darkness and enslave them look at verse 12 verse 12 it speaking of the second beast so you're thinking now false religion false priests false prophets The second beast, it exercised all the authority of the first beast in its presence. In other words, what the second beast did, it did in the presence of the first beast, the government, because it wanted to give all the honor and glory to the government, to ascribe to the government power. Look at the latter part of verse 12. The second beast makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. So the second beast, false religions, false teachers, They bring attention and glory and honor, getting the people to bow down and worship the first beast, which we know to be evil governments. The question is, how do they do that? I mean, how does the second beast get the first beast to be worshiped by so many people? Now, worship is from the heart, all worship, whether it's worship of God or worship of idols. It's what your heart values most. It's what you treasure. And so the second beast doesn't come along and use force or, or, by gunpoint, force the masses to bow down to the first beast, to these deceptive governments. Instead, they use deception. They capture what the flesh wants most, and they do it by persuasion and lies. Look at verse 13. It, speaking again of the second beast, it performs great signs even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. Verse 14, and by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, the first beast, it deceives those who dwell upon the earth. It deceives all those. Remember, earth dweller was that term in Revelation that means all those who are not saved, all those whose names are what? Not written in the book of life. So it deceives all those who are not saved, telling them to what? To make an image for the, for the, first, for the beast, the first beast, that was wounded by the sword and yet lived, telling them to what? To worship or bow down to these demonic governments. So just as Elijah was empowered by God to call down fire from heaven when he was doing battle with the prophets of Baal, the priests of Baal in 1 Kings 18, John reveals here that Satan will empower the second beast, these government-sanctioned false priests and false prophets, he will empower them to perform Misleading false miracles and signs and wonders to captivate the masses. But again, this should not surprise us. Jesus prophesied to this before he died. Matthew chapter 24, verse 24. Jesus said, For false Christ and false prophets will arise and what? Perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Even the elect. Paul, in fact, Paul and his second letter to the church in Thessalonica, he gave a very similar warning to Jesus' warning, but with some clarification. This is helpful, listen. This is Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Paul said, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and false wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So we're dealing with false signs and false wonders from false prophets of these false religions. Right? It's all deception. It's all intended to mislead and get people to bow down and worship these demonically influenced governments to deceive the world. <clears throat> and many follow because they're deceived in thinking that these this first beast, these demonically influenced governments have real hope, real salvation, that they offer real answers to real needs. And so the masses go after them. But their false hopes, every single single hope that a government offers to its people of saving its people, of offering salvation to its people is a lie. And we know here from the book of Revelation it's a lie that comes out of the pit itself. Now governments have been doing this, if you've ever taken a political science class or um, a U.S. history class or just a Western civ class, governments have been doing this for centuries. Governments make false promises all the time to their people. People believe it and they bow down to those governments. In Islamic states, the promise has been consistent now for centuries. They, They promise a holy jihad that they will conquer, and one day all nations will what? Will worship Allah. Right? So that's a promise, a utopian promise that they make. Um, in, in communist states, we know that they promise a form of what's called a, an economic utopia, that one day if all countries become communist in nature, no, there will be no more haves and have-nots. They place that hope there. In western states, we promise what? We promise economic prosperity, and personal freedom. That's what we put out there. And we say, we're going to give it to you if you follow us. In third world countries, it's just a better standard of living. Governments that come into power say, we're going to make your lives better because your lives are so bad right now. In other words, the prophets and priests of every nation offer hopes of salvation and prosperity, not in Christ, but in the government itself and in those who govern. I don't know if you had a chance to listen to the State of the Union a couple weeks back, um, but President Biden, in virtually every point that he brought up, everything from our, our current economic situation to race relations to energy independence, every single solution was the same. He said, if you give us power, we'll pass what? More laws and spend more money, and we will solve all of your problems. We will be your savior if you give us power to pass laws and spend more money. You see, in the Western world, money and legislative power are our answers, or they're our perceived answers. We think that if we spend more money and we pass more laws, the modern prophets and priests tell us things will not only get better, that one day we'll achieve that state. That state of what? No economic hardship. No cancer. No more racism. Right? That's what we're told And so what do we do, what do the masses do? We say, here's more money, pass more laws, and we find ourselves in 2023 thinking, hmm, it doesn't seem to work. It doesn't seem to work because it's a lie from the false prophets and false priests of our time. They're everywhere, right? And those who speak out against such lies, even here in the United States, you are silenced or you are dehumanized you might be fired from your job. You might be kicked out of school. Look at verse 15. And it, the second beast, for these false prophets and these false priests, was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast. So that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. And so what's fascinating, what happens is as the false priests and the false prophets of every nation cry out to the people, they give justification and credence to the government to do whatever the government wants to do. Right? If they convince the masses that this is where our hope is and our salvation is here, and then the government can come along and they they then have breath, right? They can actually speak even death sentences upon those who refuse to worship the first beast. And oftentimes, my beloved, throughout history, that will be Christians. Christians will not bow down They will say no to the second beast. They will say no to the first beast. They will not bow down and they will be persecuted. And the government will exercise that and the masses will say yes, amen. Persecute them. In other words, the world being deceived by these false signs and these false promises leads to their allegiance of both the second and the first beast. And therefore, it's okay to put those to death who do not agree or at least dehumanize them, at least marginalize them. Make sure that they suffer. When Pliny the Younger, who was, a, he was uh, an imperial magistrate, um, shortly after Domitian, actually, uh, he wrote to emperor, emperor Trajan, who was reigning over Rome between 98 and 117 AD, and he asked the emperor, what should I do with Christians who refuse to bow down to the pagan gods, who will not worship and sacrifice in the imperial cult?" What should we do with these people? Trajan told them this, quote, if they sacrifice to the gods, then do not punish them. Let them do so. If they refuse to sacrifice, Trajan said, put them to death. Put them to death. And the masses agreed. Now, our, our interpretation of this historical context would be, well, they're simply killing them because they're being disobedient, but that wasn't true. There was a, the, the false religion that was perpetuated by the priests of the imperial cult, convinced the masses they should be put to death. And it wasn't for disobedience. Remember, the heart of man wants to disobey all the time. They were killed because the imperial priest, that second beast, had convinced the masses, listen, that through their false teachings, that anyone who did not bow down and worship these pagan gods or the imperial cult was detrimental to the empire. It made the gods angry that these Christians would not come and sacrifice and worship them. And because they were not participating, the gods would act out upon the empire. They might bring war or famine or pestilence or a natural disaster. And so the priest, the imperial cult, came along and said, Listen, we need to punish them. We need to kill them because they're going to make the gods angry. Our survival of the empire to the faithful worship of these cults is necessary for all citizens, no exception. And so by linking, this is amazing, saints, now listen, I want you to really think about this. By linking the success of civil governments and the worship of false gods, Satan has not only enslaved the hearts and minds of millions for centuries, but he's given credence to governments justified to virtually every government in human history to persecute and put to death those who will not worship the false gods. Those who will not bow down to the government or the religion the government perpetuates. I I don't think there's a better contemporary example than that of China today. You know, China actually has a a church that they call a Christian church. It's a state church. Um, In in the country of China, you obviously know it's a communist country. They have 60,000 legal Government-sanctioned churches. They're called the three self-churches. And each one is controlled by the Communist Party. The second beast, then, is the three self-churches in China. Of course, the first beast is the Communist Party in China, strictly regulating everything that takes place. The Communist Party in these churches, it's considered the head, not Jesus Christ, who's the head of our church, but the Communist Party. And they decide how many people will be baptized each year. They decide who will be a preacher in their churches. They will decide exactly what they preach in those churches. All preaching in these supposedly Christian churches, all preaching in these supposedly Christian churches, this second beast, must glorify and affirm the party first, and it cannot in any way teach to or affirm the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and yet they are called, what? Christian churches. In these so-called Christian churches, Bibles are prohibited. All evangelism is prohibited. Worshiping outside these churches is prohibited. Preaching against abortion is prohibited. Printing or distributing Bibles is prohibited. Strange church, is it not? I don't think any of you would attend such a church. The preaching cannot say that atheists are going to hell and the preaching must affirm that all good communists are going to heaven, which is somewhat ironic since communists do not believe that there is such a thing. But if there is, all good communists are going. And even in these state churches, all government officials, police officers, soldiers, teachers, children, and teenagers are strictly forbidden from claiming to be a Christian, even in these state churches. So the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese state church are modern-day examples of the first and second beast's. Almost as pure as you can get from the text. One feeding upon the other. And both operating under the authority and power of Satan. To do what? To enslave the masses and to persecute the church. To enslave those who do not know Christ and to go after those who do. Look at verse 16. Also it, the second beast, causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom, verse 18, let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for it is the number of a man and his number is 666. My, what a verse that has been so brutally tortured for centuries. John tells us that those who refuse this mark are going to be persecuted. Here he tells us economically, they're not going to be allowed to buy or sell in the marketplace. They're going to be limited, right? And we've seen that throughout history. One of the the means governments use to persecute Christians is to restrict their economic activity. No market, you cannot buy or sell. No job. And all those here, John tells us, who have the mark of the beast or or his name, on their right hand or on their forehead. They cannot participate. So the question is, well, what is this mark? What is this mark? It says the second beast, so that's the false prophets and the false priests of the false religion. They, they're the ones who have marked these people, regardless, of you notice, out of class or distinction. It's all people who are not in Christ, and they're marked on their right hand or their forehead, either with the name of the beast or his number, which is 666. Now, we've done this for weeks, so we know that we're dealing with apocalyptic genre, right? So we know that there, there's symbolism involved here. It, it doesn't mean that if you are a worshiper of the beast that you literally have tattooed or engraved on your right hand or your forehead or both the number 666 or the beast's name. Just as we don't believe as we're going to get to This in chapter 14, we don't believe that the name of Jesus Christ or the Father's name is literally tattooed upon the forehead of those who believe. At least I don't see it on you, and you all know Christ, or most of you do. So it doesn't mean that. Um, This The number 666... for, I, you know, I didn't come to a saving grace till I was in my early 20s, and I heard all about this number, and I heard all the fanciful things people said. The most recent thing, which I think is hysterical, is that it was, it, it was the COVID-19 vaccine, that that was the, that was the mark of the beast. Um, I mean, it's been insane for some time. That's insane, I think. I do. I think that's a horrible interpretation of Scripture and very, very dangerous. Um, to try to attach something um, like that, as if the as if the seven churches in Asia Minor would have known about the COVID nineteen vaccine and interpreted it as such, um, I don't think so. Um, the markings on one's hand or forehead symbolized what? Symbolized allegiance. It symbolized loyalty. It symbolized worship. What we value most is upon. Our hearts and minds on your forehead, and what you have given your life to is what you use your right hand for, right? So we're talking about what captivates your heart and what you've given your life to that represents these numbers, either this number or the name of Jesus or the Father. Now, it says that wisdom is called for in verse 18, um, Which is, again, fascinating in light of how little wisdom has been applied to this verse in its real application. It's not wisdom to decipher some ancient mystical code. It's not. It is the wisdom to calculate the number or the nature of the beast. Well, what is that? It's discerning the depth of evil of Satan. And certainly his allies, the first and second beast, and all those, my beloved, whether we want to believe it or not, all those who are not in Christ, whose hearts are what? Totally depraved. Have that marking, 666. In other words, all those who have been ensnared and enslaved in the devil's trap, engaging in idolatry and false worship for centuries. You see, the number 777 represents perfection, righteousness, godliness. But John tells us that the number of the beast, the number of a man, is 666. In other words, 666 is the perfect representation of all that is in opposition to God. All that is good. All that is righteous. It is anti-God. It is anti-Christ. So if 777 represents holiness and perfect goodness, then 666 represents the total depravity that we see here in Satan, in the governments, in the false prophets, in the false priests, the false religions, and all those who worship them. It is the totality of evil that's being represented here in this symbol And the emphasis here in Revelation 13 is is on just how wide and pervasive the system of evil is and the degree to which governments and false religions and false prophets allow and cultivate for that in culture. Beast after beast, seemingly wounded, rises up again. Government after government, different political forms. We... We've seen communism, fascism, democratic socialism, and I would say democratic republics, and different places throughout history, but always with the same effect. The enslavement of man to the worship of Satan and the persecution of the church. Those are the two, and that is the goal. Enslave man to worship Satan and persecute those who have been redeemed in Christ. So John's given these visions so that we might know these truths, so that we might be able to say, I can look upon the world, I can see government, I can see the false priests and the false prophets, and I can understand what's happening. And in that understanding what? I will not be led astray. I will stay a course in Christ. I will, even though I'm pressured to cave in on all sides, I'm pressured at work, and I'm pressured at school, and even in my own home, I'm pressured to listen and capitulate to the ways of this world. In Christ, we say, we will not. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we will not. John's equipping the church to remain steadfast, especially when it's difficult, especially when bowing down to the first or second beast means suffering or persecution. God has provided these revelations to his people so that we won't be deceived, so that we understand who the first beast and the second beast, who they are, and that we won't be led astray down that path. Now, in the United States, that means guarding your ears, guarding your hearts and minds from the false prophets and the false priests of our day. All who teach and preach, listen, lies that run contrary to the Word of God. Call us to put our faith and our hope in what? In the first beast, in the government, or those in power to save us. Think about our modern-day prophets and priests that speak on behalf of a government or power. It doesn't, it's not just organized government. Anybody that's in power, any organization in its power, it fills our ears with blasphemous words. For decades now, for decades, we've been told, at least this is what I was taught when I was in school many years ago, I was told that evolution is fact and not theory. If you don't believe that, you're a fool. That there is no God, that there is no creator. We were taught years ago that freedom is the ability to do anything you want Whenever you want. We were taught that men and women are the exact same. That sexual freedom is a human right and that divorce is perfectly acceptable. When we were younger, we were taught that the only moral absolute is that there is no moral absolute. And that the most important thing in life is to be what? True to yourself. Those are teachings now that we've had for decades. That have permeated the culture and certainly permeated the public schools. More recently, these government sponsored prophets and priests have been telling us <clears throat> we, we say today, we talk about it as though it's crazy. We use that word crazy a lot. I, I would like to reorient you to use the word demonic. That's more appropriate in its extreme nature. We're told today, that the modern day prophets and priests tell us that marriage is not limited to one man and one woman that you can choose and then choose again your sexual identity and gender. They tell us that pumping teenagers full of hormones and then surgically mutilating their bodies in the name of gender fluidity is a virtue and none of the parents' business. They tell us that the great existential crisis of our time to mankind is not sin, it is the environment. We are told that if you're not woke, you are ignorant or you're a racist. They tell us that if you don't have a race, gender, or economic intersection, then you need to seek forgiveness or refrain from talking. They tell us that our children should be raised and decisions made for our children, not by parents, but by the government. My beloved, how many once-sound evangelical churches in the West have listened to these lies and become state-sponsored churches? How many in the last two or three decades? Just like the three self-church in China, listening to the lives of these prophets and priests perpetuated through government and those in power. The Anglican Church, the Episcopal Church, the United Methodist Church, the Evangelical Lutheran Church, PCUSA and countless non-denominational churches are now part of that unholy trinity, participating in the perpetuation of of these lies in the name of Jesus Christ. And how many professing Christians in the West have fallen into Satan's trap and become part of the unholy trinity? All in the name of love, all in the name of tolerance, many in the name of progress, because we want to be progressive thinkers, thousands of churches and tens of thousands of Christians right here in the United States have become subject to the teachings of the second beast. Real time. John tells us this it is a warning of the highest measure and I would say today in light of our cultural moment a warning that we need to hear to understand so that we can what so that we can be on alert first Peter chapter 5 verse 8 be be alert and sober-minded why your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour well how does he prowl He prowls through governments. He prowls through false teachers and political pundits. He prowls by putting pressure on you to capitulate, to forsake the word of God, to turn away from Scripture, to stop thinking and speaking and living like a Christian. So what hope do you have, my beloved, of persevering to the end? I mean, in light of our cultural moment, I would say that the first and second beast are pretty active. They're pretty active today. What hope do you have of remaining faithful amongst such powerful and persistent enemies? And what assurance can you have now that in the end you're going to be welcomed by God and not cast out into the lake of fire with Satan and the demons and all those who worship them? I got one more point. I pray you're still with me. Point number two, worshipers of the Lamb. So in the first first verses we saw there at the end of chapter 13, we saw the, those who worship um, the beast. Here I want to show you a dramatic shift in the text. Um, I know that in our Bibles we have, we have chapters and we have subdivisions that wasn't there in the extent manuscripts. This transitions right out of the realm of the beast and the darkness and the mark of, of the beast, 666, right into the heavenly realm. Um, look at the shift here and it's a dramatic shift. We go from the two beasts on earth to the reign of the Father and the Lamb in heaven. Look at verse one. Chapter 14, John says, Then I looked, so a new vision now, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And so through this divine vision, John now is transported off the earth, seeing what was taking place there. He's transported out of the darkness, and he's placed on Mount Zion. Mount Zion in the Old Testament was... um, Um, represented the the dwelling place of God. So he's on Mount Zion, the dwelling place of God, and he sees there, he sees the lamb, of course we know this already in our studies, the lamb is the crucified, risen Savior, it is Jesus Christ, now seated upon the throne. And John sees him standing, and you say, I know why he's standing. He's standing because he's reigning. He is currently reigning over the heavens and the earth. He is the what? He's the king of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. So unlike the deception of the mortally wounded governments that rise to power and then fall again, and then another government rises to power and falls again. This truly is the mortally wounded one who died and was raised from the dead. This is the one who, upon the cross, gave his life. He suffered, he died, he was buried, and on the third day, as we know, the scriptures said, he rose from the dead and he has ascended into heaven and millions follow him rightly as he should be followed, not like the beast or the second beast. He stands and he reigns and he offers to mankind real hope. Real hope of overcoming sin. But one of the things I hope you noticed here is that he's not reigning over the heavens and the earth alone. Look at the latter part of verse one. So here's the Lamb, here's Jesus Christ, standing, reigning, ruling. And with Him, 144,000 who had His name and His Father's name written on their foreheads. Now the 144, we already have argued this point, that is all those who are redeemed in Christ. From Genesis chapter 4, until that day He comes again in glory, it's all those who have been what? Saved by grace through faith in the Lamb. In the blood of the Lamb. And they all have Jesus' name and God the Father's name, both written on their foreheads. So again, it's apocalyptic genre. It's not literally Jesus' name or the Father's name on the forehead. We're told this in direct contrast to what? In direct contrast to the name of the beast and the number of the beast being written on the right hands and the foreheads of those who worship Satan. In other words, the markings here, they're not literal. They are Relational. They're relational. The markings of the beast or the markings of of the redeemed reveal who we belong to. They reveal who we worship. What the possessor of the mark cherishes or values most. Those on earth, they worship Satan and the beasts in all their lives. Those that John sees here in heaven, the 144,000, They worship God the Father and God the Son, the Lamb. It's an extraordinary contrast. And as John is gazing upon the glorious sight of the Lamb of God, reigning and ruling with his bride, the church, he's he's captivated by this. He suddenly hears a sound. Look at verse 2. John says, And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, verse three. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the hundred and forty-four who had been redeemed from the earth. So the voice that that John hears, it's not God's voice, and it's not the voice of a mighty angel. It's the voice says of the hundred and forty four thousand, those who had been redeemed. And the sound is so voluminous, John tells us, it fills the heavens. Look, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder, it's filling the heavens. And it's not a fearful sound, it's not an an ominous sound, it's beautiful and it's melodious, he says, and at the end of verse two, it's like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. So it's beautiful. Now, harps and, and music in the Old Testament were often attached to joy and gladness. And certainly that's what John is talking about here. Psalm 33, listen, verses 1 and 2. Shout for joy to the Lord, O you righteous. Give thanks to the Lord with your lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. And so joy and gladness is represented by um, the type of music that John is hearing. And what John is seeing and hearing is the expression of pure Joy. It's the 144,000 on Mount Zion with God the Father and God the Son, expressing through song their joy and gratitude in Christ, as pure as it can be. Tom Schreiner writes this in his commentary. He said, "This new song of the 144,000 it captures. Listen, this is amazing. He would say this. It captures perhaps more profoundly than anything else." the depths of joy swelling in their hearts. More than anything else, this new song is capturing the joy that the redeemed in the presence of God the Father and the Son are experiencing. In the Bible, it's not uncommon, and we know this from the Old Testament, that someone would write and sing a new song in light of being delivered. We know this when when Moses and the Israelites came to the Red Sea. Once they were safe, Moses penned a song And the Israelites had a chance to sing this early, way before they get to Mount Sinai. Moses wrote this song, a song of deliverance, Exodus 15. Listen to what he wrote. Moses and the people of Israel sang this song Ah, to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea, of course, speaking of Pharaoh and his army. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. Now here in Revelation, John hears the redeemed in heaven singing a new song of deliverance. Delivered by whom? Jesus Christ. Delivered how? By his blood. And this is the song that they're singing that's thundering through the heavens. It's bringing such a melodious sound to the angels and even the elders. And they're the only ones that can sing it, John tells us. Not because the song was so hard to sing. It's not because it wasn't a a corporate song. They're the only ones that can sing it because in order to sing it, you had to be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. You had to experience salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ because of his death and because of his resurrection. And if you experience this, then you could be part of that 144,000 choir. You had to be one. John says, redeemed from the earth. You had to be one pulled out of the clutches of Satan and the first and second beast. Pulled out of the darkness. Redeemed out of the idolatry. Out of the lies. To sing this new song meant you were going to sing a song of praise and adoration. Eternal praise and eternal adoration for the Lamb of God who won your freedom by His own blood. This song filled the heavens with praise in a thunderous, joyful way. And it will for all eternity as God's people will sing this new song. What a stark contrast, my beloved, to those on earth. What a stark contrast to those marked by the beast rather than marked by Christ. Their end, we know, is destruction. There will be no joy, no new song, no beautiful melody, no gladness, The only sound that will be heard for eternity will be that of moaning. Those who are marked with the name of the beast or with the number 666 will be those who are under judgment of God. The sound of moaning will be from their weeping and the gnashing of their teeth. The contrast here cannot be more extreme. John fully intends it to show you the picture of those unsaved worshiping Satan and the first and second beast marked by their names and their number and then suddenly we're cast into heaven and now we get a glimpse of the redeemed and they instead, they're named by God. They belong to God and they're worshiping their Savior. The contrast, I believe, should compel anyone with even the slightest sensibility to want heaven, to want God the Father. To want Christ and the community of the saints experiencing what? The fullness of joy. What your heart was made for. To worship God, to be in the presence of God, to enjoy the glory of God, to serve God. That's why you were made. And in Christ, that's how you are redeemed. I guess the question for us as I close is who makes the choir? I mean, who's in the choir? Do you have to have a really good voice? If so, I'm in trouble. You might be too. What is the qualifications of of being in this choir? It can't simply be claiming to be a Christian. There are many in these false churches, certainly here in the United States and China and around the world, who claim to be Christians, who do not know Christ. We must never forget what Jesus said clearly in Matthew chapter 7 on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, they're in these false churches. Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then Jesus said, I will declare to them, I never knew you depart from me, what? You worker of lawlessness. So to be in the choir cannot mean simply being a member or participating in a church. John actually gives us two Qualifying characteristics of how you get into the choir, of how you make it in. I want you to ask yourself, as I close with these two points, I want you to ask yourself, is this me? I mean, is it me? You're marked right now. You're either marked with the name of Jesus and the Father, or you're marked by the name of the beast and the number 666, right this very moment. So the question you want to ask is, what's my marking? What's my heart? Who or what do I truly worship this morning? It doesn't matter yesterday and tomorrow is in the future. What about today? Who do you worship today? Characteristic number one, look at verse four. John says, it is these, those who are in the choir, it is these who have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins. Now, this better be symbolic or many of us, especially if we're married, are in big trouble. Right, um, it, it can't mean you have to be literally a virgin physically in order to be part of the redeemed of God. Um, it's symbolic for, and this is, this, is, this is an easy one to understand, of spiritual adultery. Right? Idolatry is called spiritual adultery both in the Old and the New Testaments. In the Old Testament, we know that, that God's people were called his bride, the bride of Yahweh. And when the bride of Yahweh would chase after false gods, the bride of Yahweh was committing adultery against God. Their husband, Ezekiel chapter 16, when speaking of Israel, God said this, how sick is your heart, declares the Lord God, because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute. He's talking about false worship. They bowed down to the first beast. An adulterous wife you have been, who receives strangers instead of her husband, speaking of himself. But John tells us the 144,000 he sees on Mount Zion, they remain faithful. They have not listened to the lies of the second beast. They have not bowed down to the first beast. They have remained faithful and committed to God. So they haven't committed spiritual adultery. John says essentially the same thing in verse 5, but he uses the symbol of lying instead of Adultery. Look at verse 5. He says, in their mouth, he's speaking of the 144,000, in their mouth no lie was found, for they are, they're blameless. Now, of course, we would argue that those who are truly saved by grace through faith do not make a practice of lying. We would argue that, but just as John used singleness In verse 5, he's using lying here symbolically. In the Old Testament, devotion to idols was also considered a lie or a way of lying. In fact, when pronouncing judgment upon Jerusalem for the idolatry, the people themselves said this, Isaiah 28, we have made a covenant with death, for we have made lies, idols, our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter in them. In other words, those who belong to the 144,000, did not listen to the lies of the second beast. They did not bow down and worship the first. They were blameless, John says. Now that's not sinless. Otherwise, again, we're all in trouble. No one's making it in. It's blameless, meaning what? Meaning when it comes to worship, when it comes to your heart and mind and how you live your life, God is the one you worship. Those in the 144,000 are blameless in that they had not surrendered to the lies. They had not bowed down to the first beast. They had not given their lives over to an idol that is not God. They were worshipers of the one true living God. They had not surrendered their lives to these idols. So John is not talking about perfect worship in the life of the believer, he's not talking about being tempted. He's not talking about never sinning or never going astray. We know, we, we know this. He wrote First John, right? He said, "He said whoever says he's without sin is a liar, and the truth is not in him." So we know he's not saying that. He's talking about the trajectory of your life. He's talking about the captivation of your heart and mind in Jesus Christ, truly captivated. Who or what do you worship? Staying the course in the midst of difficulties and hardships. Is that you? Does that reflect the name or number that's written upon your forehead this morning? It's you if, after the loss of a loved one or a relationship gone bad, You turn to Christ, you turn to the church instead of antidepressants or isolation to get through your difficult time. It's you if after the loss of a job or getting set back in your career or school, you trust in God's promise to provide for you instead of panicking and doing something rash or worse yet, turning to the government as your Savior. It's you in hearing all the false prophets tell you all the lies they perpetuate and saying, I know that's a lie. I will hold fast to what God says. It's you when your compassion for the lost leads to you speaking the truth in love to them that they might no longer be lost but come to know Christ. Your heart and your mind this morning captivated by Christ because you've been saved by grace, truly saved by grace through faith, John says, is a necessary characteristic to be in the choir of the 144,000. It's not work. It's you who you truly are in Christ. But then he gives us a second here. You can't be an idol worshiper. (laughs) That's, That's understandable, right? Love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But then he gives us a second one here, which I think is a little more pressing for evangelicals. Look at the latter part of verse four. It is these, speaking of the 144,000, it is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the lamb. They've been redeemed. They've been plucked out of the darkness, plucked out of the lies of the second beast, plucked out of the false worship of the first beast, and they've been brought into the relationship of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The real trinity and now they're in. They belong in the kingdom. They're sons and daughters. They're citizens. They're the first fruits given to God and to Christ. Made clean through the cross to worship and serve God forever. That's who's in this choir. Those set free from the worship of Satan. And what will they do? It says they will follow the Lamb. Look closely. Wherever he goes wherever he goes in other words being redeemed and becoming first fruits of jesus's harvest becoming and being now the brilliant testimonies of the work of christ on the cross saving you and changing you and because you are truly changed you will live a different life it'll be evidenced in what your obedience to god your obedience to Christ. If you're going to follow Christ, you're going to obey Christ. So what God says in his word, you will do. And you'll want to do. You'll want to obey. You'll want to follow. You'll want to listen because your heart's been changed. The 144,000 that are on Mount Zion follow Jesus wherever he goes. And that means into those difficult situations too where you know that following him will lead to persecution. It'll lead to suffering, but you go anyway because he is your Lord. You go. Jesus said in John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they what? They follow me. They follow me wherever I go. And then he said, and I give them eternal life. First John chapter five John said this, for this is the love of God that we what? We keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. So those who are in the 144,000, they want to know the word of God. They want to obey God. They want to follow Christ. Why? Because that's their heart. They've been captured by him. That's their worship. A hallmark of the 144,000 will be knowing and submitting to God's teachings wanting to know and wanting to submit to the Word of God, not being satisfied with ignorance. And we're so satisfied today. My beloved, aren't there so many things you want to know about God and life and your sin nature that you really want to know? It's not that they're not accessible to you, but we're okay being ignorant. Worse yet, my beloved, we don't want to be satisfied in knowing and then not doing. We know what James has to say about that. The true Christian who has eternal life in Christ will want to know and obey. He'll want to live and understand how to live and then live in accordance with God's word. That will be his desire. Even when that obedience brings hardship and persecution. So I ask again, is that you? Does that describe you? Does that describe the path that you're on? The trajectory of your life? To know God, to know his word, to live in obedience to it? Or do you listen more to the lies of this world? Who has your ear most? Is it God through His Word? Or is it the false teachers and false preachers of Satan? Who do you submit to more? The ways of this world or the Word of God? My beloved, the idols of every time, they're like lying prostitutes. They spew out lies of false hope and false salvation calling Christians, even you, to turn away from Christ and the commands of his word and to come and to join in the party of mankind, to go with the flow, to stop resisting, to give in to your flesh, to stop reading your Bible, stop going to church, and stop listening to those crazy Christians. Stop listening to them. That's what these prostitutes and these liars want. There are only two types of worship in the world. Those who worship the beast and those who worship the lamb. It is truly binary. I want you to know this day who you worship. Be certain this morning before you get out of that seat and you get into that car and you go home, be certain this morning who you worship. One leads to eternal life to inexpressible joy, to you being part of the choir of the 144,000, singing with gratitude in your heart for the work of the Lamb. The other type of worship leads to eternal death and the incomprehensible misery of going through eternity without God. Without God. Everyone worships my beloved. The real question is who or what do you worship? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would forgive us for not seeing things very clearly, for moving through life as though Satan is not proud, wanting to devour us, and for taking for granted the Salvation that we've been given freely in Christ. I ask, Father, that you would be gracious with our church this morning and all your true churches throughout the world. That you would cause us to reflect deeply upon who or what we really worship. Who we listen to. How we spend our time and our money. What is important to us. What are our dreams. Cause us to reflect upon these, Father, and ask soberly whether or not it is in pursuit of Christ that we are following Him wherever He goes. I ask, Lord, that for my brothers and sisters in particular, that there be great confirmation that we indeed do belong to Jesus, that we are striving to know His Word, we want to be obedient. This is our desire. And for those who are questioning right now whether or not they truly worship God. I ask for salvation, Father, that you be gracious to redeem anyone here who has made a profession or been baptized or joined a church that is still marked by the number of the beast. The contrast is intended to be extreme, Father. Make that known to us by your Spirit and then give us the wisdom to go in the right direction. I pray that for our well-being, of course. But I also pray it that we might be the most brilliant testimony that we can to this world, that as your first fruits, those here in the Cambrian Park community, certainly those in our family, our friends, our co-workers, would see us and our love for God, and through us, you would save many. Make us first fruits, Father, that truly bring you honor and glory, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.